From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. This podcast is called I Speak of Africa. When the British came to colonize the African continent in the middle of the 1800s, they brought many staples of Victorian England along with them, including rigid class hierarchies, boarding schools, the Anglican Church, and Shakespeare. These various impositions were taken up by native Africans with varying levels of emotion, shaping life in Anglophone Africa in ways the British might have imagined would last forever. They didn't. And as we will hear, after the British left power, it was often Shakespeare who leaders in African countries summoned to push back against the colonial experience, using his words to promote unity, elevate native languages, and critique the politics of the time. In this podcast, host Barbara Bogave talks with Jane Plasto, professor of African theater at the University of Leeds. They're joined in their conversation by the voices of writers and scholars from throughout Britain's former African colonies who help put the continent's long engagement with Shakespeare into perspective. Let's start in the present-day Shakespeare scene in Africa with one important African writer who we interviewed for this podcast and who contributed a fascinating chapter in a book that you edited about Shakespeare in Africa. Femi Oshafason is his name. Now, we're going to play some comments from him in a bit. But first, tell us who Femi Oshafason is and why he's such a prominent figure in African literature. Okay, so Femi is probably the second most famous playwright in Nigeria, which is undoubtedly the richest theatrical nation in Africa, the most preeminent being, of course, Wale Shoyenka. But Ashofisan is slightly younger. He must be in his 60s now. And he's been a hugely prolific playwright. And he's written a whole lot of original plays. But one of the things he very often does is he adapts texts either by African writers or he's done a number of Greek adaptations. He has a degree in French. He's hugely cosmopolitanly knowledgeable. And we're going to talk about adaptation a little bit later in our conversation. But getting back to that book that you edited, uh, in which Ashafasan contributed uh, a chapter, his was about Shakespeare productions by African troops at the Globe to Globe Festival in London during the 2012 Olympics. And five African countries were represented at that festival. And we do have some very short clips from two of them, so everyone can get the sound of the Shakespeare in their ears. Here's a little bit of the Merry Wives of Windsor in Swahili. And here's a winter's tale in Yoruba. Now, in his chapter in the book, one of the things Oshafasan talked about was the style of acting that many of the African performers were able to do at the Globe Theater, how, how the thrust stage at the Globe enabled a kind of interactive theater experience that's more common in Africa than it is in England or the U.S. And we asked him to tell us more about that. It allowed them to act in a style that they were used to with the audience very close by and responding. If you come from a theater in Britain where the audience is in the auditorium, the actors are on stage, you know that throughout the performance is almost complete 
dead silence and you only have some response at the end of the show. It's in Africa, in most of Africa, this is totally different. You'll never have the audience sitting down passively, just listening at any time. <laughs> You're singing, the audience is singing back, they're joining the choruses, they, you know, they're responding to the proverbs, you know. I mean, here we use proverbs, and uh, usually you only have to say half of the proverb. The audience completes the rest of it. You know? I mean, so it's a very, very, very active uh, kind of audience here. So, Jane, is this acting style that Femi is talking about common all over Africa? Absolutely. Um, in Africa, in most of the countries I've been in, it's a much more engaged kind of experience. It's kind of much more like it would have been in Shakespeare's day, which is why the Globes so great for for African performance, because you've got this audience around you and you can take the play into the audience. Uh, you expect a kind of call and response. Yeah, there's the, the passive audience of the West is utterly alien to most African performance. Right. And and Femi talked about that, at least regarding the Nigerian style of Shakespeare performances, that that when British theatre troops come over to Africa to perform, it really creates a problem. When a very famous uh, group from London, for example, comes here to perform Macbeth, and then people compare the thing to the Macbeth done by the local people, they find the English one rather strange, you know, <laughs> very unacceptable. It's most bizarre. People sit there and they kind of know that it's a bit different and you get this kind of strange mismatch. So I've often seen things that say the British Council, which takes Shakespeare tours around various parts of Africa. So you've got some people who kind of know the European Convention and are trying to do that. And then you've got some people who've got no knowledge and might be making kind of emotional responses to something. And the actors also find that quite difficult at times because obviously they're not ready for that kind of engaged audience. So it's, it can be a very interesting experience. Well, that gives us a, a snapshot of modern day Shakespeare in Africa, but we're gonna delve a little deeper into just how Shakespeare became indigenized in, in Africa. And to do that, we're gonna have to go back in time and talk about when and why the English were in Africa in the first place. And, and so at the risk of asking you to do the impossible and betray every instinct you have as an academic, <laughs> what is the short version of an answer to that question? Ah, well, it is a tale of evil colonialism. That's what it's all about. Um, or before that, it's a tale of evil slavery. So, so we're going to follow the money trail now. Yeah, yeah. Of course, it's all about money and capitalism and exploitation. So the British go into various parts of Africa at various times. But of course, it starts with West Africa and the evils of the transatlantic slave trade. But at that time, of course, you don't get many settlers. You get a few missionaries going in. So we're, and we're talking what century at this point? We are so so the very first touchdowns are way back in the sixteenth century, but if you're talking about substantial numbers of people going into Africa, setting up schools, which is where Shakespeare comes to, you're talking about the from the so the first settlers into South Africa from England, 1820s, but that's very early. Most places you're talking about the late 
19th century. So from the 1870s onwards is a, a realistic time frame. And just to clarify, the first settlers, they were Europeans, specifically Portuguese explorers, right, back to the 15th century. Yeah, the British went into South Africa in the 1820s. The, Brit- the Portuguese have been there since the 1650s, something like that. Right, and the Dutch and the Dutch East Indian Company had uh, yeah, their trade yeah. claim in South Africa. Yeah. So England's Africa involvement falls uh, within the greater European trade history in the mid-19th century, early 19th century. That's and that's right. when settlement begins. So is that when, when these countries started claiming territory and, and moving uh, into the category of settler? Yeah. So in southern Africa, yeah, we're talking from the 1820s onwards. In most of the rest of Africa, in West Africa, for example, You're talking from the 1840s, but substantial numbers from the 1870s. And what caused the settlement and and how does it play into the history of the resources, gold and diamonds that were discovered in South Africa? Okay, well, that's why they want South Africa, obviously. First of all, people had gone there just as a trade post. People were going around to India. And at that time, of course, there was no Suez Canal. So you've got to go around the Cape of Good Hope at the bottom of South Africa. So ships had to stop there for various reasons. But then you find gold and that's a very powerful motive. So you get a huge expansion in South Africa from the 1820s. Elsewhere, you had people going in, as I said, the first traders were engaged in the slave trade. But then, of course, you have the people who are trying to stop the slave trade. And that starts to bring missionaries into West Africa, specifically from the mid 19th century. And the missionaries are often seen as the people who soften people up for colonialism. I know you've interviewed my friend Ngugi Wathiongo for this, and he tells a lovely story about missionaries. He says that uh, when the white man came, he told people to kneel down and shut their eyes and pray. And when they opened their eyes, they, they had the Bible and the white man had their land. That's wonderful. That's not one of the stories we have him telling us a little bit later in our conversation, but I wish we did. What he talks about, and and now we're we're speaking with your friend, the African writer, Gugi Oathyang, and he's a leading Kenyan playwright and novelist. He told us about going to school before independence in the 1950s. and, And here, in fact, let's play it. This is how he described it. In colonial Kenya, there were three types of schools. One was a colonial government school, the other was a colonial missionary school, and the other was actually schools run independently by African people. And then he went on to explain that what with these three kinds of schools, his education got a bit complicated. He went to elementary school, apparently, in an independent African school. But then the British banned the independent African schools. And so for high school, he attended this missionary school where he was just immersed in Shakespeare, student performances, and also recitation. By the end of the four years, I had seen a performance of As You Like It in 1955, King Henry V in 1956, Midsummer Night's Dream in 1957, and King Lear. And at Alanza School, we had to recite some of Shakespeare's poetry. I recall his 18th sonnet, 
with a line, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? In my memoir, I have related a story of one of the boys who claimed that he had used the poem and managed to win the heart on one of the girls from our neighboring school. So all of us went about trying to, uh, <laughs> to recite the poem in different ways and posing in different ways, you know, um, imagining our future conquest uh, of God's heart through his poetry. I hasten to add, I never managed to conquer any, <laughs> but I do still remember the lines, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Okay, so this is a lovely story. I know many Africans and, and African politicians, for example, who quote Shakespeare all the time because if they're of a certain age, they learnt reams of it off by heart. So it can be used for love. It can be used for politics. It can be used to show that you are a culturally sophisticated and powerful person. So he went to Alliance High School, which was the premier colonial boarding school. So what happens is that the missionaries start small schools because they need people to help them to convert people. Uh, they both translate the Bible into local languages and they start to teach people English so that it can go both ways. And they start to use little bits of drama to get their point across. So they start off with Bible stories and so on. Right, and both Gugi and, and Femi Ashofasan said, said very similar things to, to what you're talking about. And Femi told us that, that missionaries essentially tried to wipe out this indigenous African theater that had grown up. Theater in our tradition is very much linked to religious practices, to festivals, religious festivals. The British uh, colonial establishment depended very much on collaboration with the Christian missions. As far as they were concerned, these traditional festivals, which were performed in honor of gods and so on, you know, were pagan, you know, were heathenish. And so they had to be banned. Yes, they did. The missionaries, of course, had a mission to convert everyone to Christianity. But you have to recognise at that time that colonialism is also predicated on the notion of darkest Africa, of a bunch of savages. If you acknowledge that people have sophisticated, complex cultures of their own, then what's your justification for colonising them? Gradually, as colonialism kind of follows on behind, what you've got is the state needing a small group of elite Africans in all the countries they colonise to be mediators between the peoples and also to become the carriers of this colonial culture. Because if you can indoctrinate people to think that their culture is inferior and that your culture is superior, then you don't need as many troops, do you? I've got your mind. And Googie has written a very famous book called Decolonizing the Mind, in which he talks about the cultural bomb. And learning Shakespeare was part of the cultural bomb. The colonial system of education tried to colonize the revolutionary Shakespeare is a colonial system which, while thinking it was imposing Shakespeare, was actually putting Shakespeare in chains. 
Shakespeare was closer to our struggles in Kenya, but the colonial system of interpreting him and so on tried to tame that revolutionary implications of Shakespeare, particularly the fundamental struggle for power. And in all his plays, he's able to show that power changes, not through the pen, as I like to think myself, but actually through the sword. Because all his plays are full of blood, they are assassinations, and that bloodedness of Shakespeare, which was tamed by the way he was presented in the colonial classroom. The implications of that way of presenting Shakespeare and taming his revolutionary spirit had the same result as saying, look, we produce a Shakespeare. You have never produced Shakespeare. In most of these colonial boarding schools, you weren't allowed to talk your own language. So many stories I've heard of at the beginning of a day, a child will be given a stone or some kind of token. And every time during the day they heard one of their classmates speaking a local language, they gave it to them. And at the end of the day, the person who had the stone was roundly punished and often made to wear a dunce's cap. So the whole project was predicated on eradicating a culture that publicly was not acknowledged even to exist. But of course, they went home, didn't they, in the holidays? And there they were surrounded by vibrant, meaningful integrated cultures. And so the first generation of African writers are usually turning their backs entirely uh, on not the content, not the cultural riches, but the messages that colonial has been, has been, has been trying to import. So you get this very syncretic theatre coming out uh, just after independence, which is writing back, which is saying, you tried to eradicate our culture. We're showing you how rich our culture was and you never managed to entirely suppress it. And here we are, we're your leaders and we're telling you that we've got a culture of our own. So an incredibly fertile time after independence and, and you're bringing up this issue of translation, which is such a fascinating story on the continent. And we reached out to another African scholar to talk about that, Dr. Cho Kalker. He's a Sierra Leonean American professor in the English department at Quinnipiac College in Connecticut. Today, the principal language of Sierra Leone is Creole. Now, before we hear from Dr. Kalker, I want to give our listeners a taste of Creole. It's fantastic. This is a public service ad from 2015, and it's debunking the common myths about Ebola. When you go to hospital with Ebola syndrome, there, the doctor will give you bad, bad injection. They will kill you. Well, not lie. If you go to hospital with any symptom, they'll keep you by yourself and treat you 10 and find out what do you do. Uh-huh. Then go take you blood, then go send it at a treatment center for fen waiting to do you. If you not get her, then go keep you tight and no say you not get the virus. Now, it's so clear when you listen to that, that, that Creole is like uh, Spanglish. It's a hybrid language, and you can hear snatches of African languages, snatches of English, and all of that blended together. And the British didn't consider Creole to be a real language. So when the country gained independence, 
Cocker says the desire to break away from England wasn't just about political independence. It went way farther than that. Sierra Leone had been robbed of an identity by British colonialism and and that, you know, they had this Anglophile identity thrust upon them. And language was an important part of that. With that breaking away from the British Empire, uh, the elites in the country really, really had a desire to have Creole take a place of prominence. There really was this push it's for uh, the nation to really assert itself linguistically. And Cho Calker goes on to explain that a playwright named Thomas Decker, who was also head of the Ministry of Information, he decided because of this that he would translate Julius Caesar into Creole. And here's how Decker dealt with the phrase, beware the Ides of March, in the soothsayer scene. Decker translates that as, uh, oh, excuse me, tictem match middlemont. And, and this actually means more than beware, or, or it carries a stronger connotation. When a mother or, or a parent says tictem, that parent is essentially telling that child to stop, consider what you're doing. Uh, you are headed towards danger. Well, it is very interesting that the most commonly produced Shakespeare play I know of anywhere in Africa is Julius Caesar. So that speaks to the uh, power politics that uh, Africans very quickly found in Shakespeare. It was, yeah, it was used in all sorts of ways. So, Mwalimu uh, Julius Nyerere, the first president of Tanzania, For example, one of his projects was to introduce Kiswahili as the language of Tanzania, which he did very successfully in order not to privilege any one local language over the other, but also to get rid of the colonial implications of English. So one of the things he does to prove how sophisticated Kiswahili is, is he translates Julius Caesar and Merchant of Venice into Kiswahili while he is president. <laughs> yeah, he stay, he burnt the midnight oil. <laughs> yeah, he was an extraordinary sophisticated man. So that's at, at one end. Um, and then you get a whole lot of people beginning to adapt. So that was a direct translation. What you get elsewhere is increasingly radical adaptations of Shakespeare. So taking the meat of the message in a very Shakespearean way, of course, Shakespeare took stories from other people and then adapted them. So you take the story of Julius Caesar, you Africanize it, you give people African names, you put African dance on. You can't have theatre in Africa without music and dance. It's just, just a travesty. So you Africanize its form, you Africanize its names, and to varying degrees, you radically change the structure of the piece as well. So while playwrights were expressing their literary independence by freely translating Shakespeare, Googie Wath Young told us that in Kenya, there was a push to take the focus off of English writers and make sure that students got equal access to African writers. In Kenya, there was actually a struggle for the soul of Shakespeare. It was either the colonial Shakespeare continued into the post-colonial era or a liberated Shakespeare 
whose spirit will work with New Kenya. I and a few others were the first call for the abolition of the English department and its reorganization as a literature department. Although we had not banned Shakespeare, we had just argued for the centrality of African literature. We were actually accused by the Kenyan government, post-colonial Kenyan government, of trying to ban Shakespeare. Okay, so this reclaiming of Shakespeare didn't stop there, right, Jane? What other forms did these expressions of literary independence take? Okay, so you find post the 1970s, which is when Ngugi is talking about asserting the centrality of African literature at Nairobi University. This was a hugely controversial act at the time. Many of the reactions have been to really take Shakespeare away from any kind of notion that you have to reproduce a literal translation or that you have to literally reproduce the action. So Shakespeare is increasingly taken as a storyteller, as a starting point from which you then write into your own language. So Devereshwami in Mauritius is one of the most famous tradaptators, he calls himself, of Shakespeare. Uh, his Tufan, which is an adaptation of The Tempest. So again, we're talking about valorizing the local language, but we're also talking about using the politics of Shakespeare to massively critique, in this case, the right of the magician, the Prospero figure, to control the people. So it's often been reviewed uh, in terms of reclaiming identity, of challenging this Western notion of the all-knowing white wizard and putting Caliban and the witch at the centre and saying, no, these are the actual people who know this culture. Oh, that's so fascinating. And now to bring this conversation full circle and back to, to the present day, Cho Kalker and Femia Shofasan gave me the impression that it's getting tougher and tougher to find Shakespeare in the schools in Africa, despite this rich history during, the, during independence and afterwards. And this is what Cho Kalker said about his last trip back to Sierra Leone. The move really has been towards stepping away from those uh, colonial classics and really focusing on uh, 20th century literature and particularly the literature of Africa. We would be more likely to see in these classrooms an author like uh, uh, Chinua Achebe in place of Shakespeare or uh, his contemporaries. And Femi agreed. If you look at the syllabus of the schools now, you find very hard to see Shakespeare there. We love them, we still love Shakespeare, and you find many of our rulers quote Shakespeare. You know. But I'm afraid many of the younger generation wouldn't even know who you are quoting if you, if you quote, give them some of the quotations. So Jane, is Shakespeare still part of most schools' curriculum at all? Well, there are 54 countries in Africa, so there are 54 different responses. And, of course, only half of them are Anglophone anyway. 
but I was in Malawi a few months ago. Every Malawian student has to study a Shakespeare play. Similarly, in Uganda, you would have to do that. In Ethiopia, there are many translations of Shakespeare and he's widely studied in school, but in the local language, in Amharic. So it's a really varied picture. But I would certainly say talking to students, Shakespeare really lives in Africa when it's translated into African vernacular languages and African performance forms. When it's got to be studied on the page as straight British Shakespeare, it has precious little meaning to students. So I think the future for Shakespeare is to allow himself to play with the glories of the rich performance traditions and languages of Africa. Well, I, I completely take to heart your your warning that it's impossible to generalize anything about Africa. But how common are Shakespeare performances there these days? Because Femi also said that it's almost impossible to find live theater in Africa anymore. Uh, well, again, he's talking about Nigeria. It depends where you are. There are relatively few performances of Shakespeare. I'd say, interestingly, there is more interest in adapting and translating Greek classics, for example. I think the mythical structure works very well for a lot of people there. Why, why do you think that is? It's more akin to indigenous storytelling forms? Yes, I think a lot of the myths about destiny and great characters and the kind of strong central narrative of the plays doesn't seem to play into any one country. You know, if you look at the history plays, which I know Ngugi talked about studying, that's very far away for a, a modern African young person. Sure. Uh, which is why I think you get your Romeo and Juliet, your Macbeth, your Tempest, uh, your Julius Caesar coming round and round again everywhere I go. So they're not put on hugely often. But for example, a few years ago when I was in Ethiopia, where I work a lot, a run of Othello had run for three years. Well, I think what Femi was picking up on were some of the safety issues around live theater, also funding and also the, the influence of film and video culture in Africa. Okay, so Nigeria has the problem of security. That's certainly not the case in many other African countries. Film is the huge problem. Cheap video films can be made and consumed by the thousand. And there are small video halls, not proper cinemas, but small shacks sometimes where you can go and watch a film for a few cents. Um, and this has really threatened theatre Interestingly, Kenya, where Nguga came from, which came from a very low level because the government really suppressed it after his own work, which was seen as very subversive, is just having a major revamp of its national theatre and is beginning again to revamp theatre departments in universities. But uh, no, Shakespeare will only survive as long as people are allowed to play with it. And I think it will become increasingly difficult for Western tours of Shakespeare to go to Africa. So the Globe has recently taken Hamlet round every country in the world. But I was in Africa after a couple of those performances. And whilst people were hugely admiring of the virtuosity of the actors, it was seen as a very elite, distant experience as opposed to the vibrancy which you saw in some of the globe shows 
uh, where Africans brought Shakespeare back to England. So I think if England wants to, and places like the Royal Shakespeare and the Globe want to engage with Africa over Shakespeare, they need to do some learning from Africa, not the other way around. Well, I think that's a great place to end as much as I would rather keep talking. Oh, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking with you today. It's a pleasure to contribute. <laughs> thank you. Goodbye. Jane Plasto is professor of African theater at the University of Leeds and co-editor of African Theater 12, Shakespeare in and out of Africa. She was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. We also heard from Nigerian playwright Femi Oshafizon, from the renowned Kenyan playwright and novelist Gugi Wafiong, and also Cho Cocker, a Sierra Leonean American professor in the English department at Quinnipiac University in Connecticut. I Speak of Africa was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. We had a lot of help pulling this podcast together. Our thanks first to Colleen Sinnott-Jennings and David Skolkvik, who helped us in tracking down voices for this presentation, and to Barbara Caldwell at UC Irvine. We had help with a recording from Gareth Dant at the University of Leeds, independent producer George Lavender, Ray Anderson at WQUN Radio in Hamden, Connecticut, and Babatunde Ogunbadu at Midas Touch Studios in Ibadan, Nigeria. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.